Several years ago at a meeting of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, FCA, Bobby Richardson, who is former second baseman for the New York Yankees, gave a prayer. What was interesting about that prayer was it was extremely short, just a few words, but although it was extremely short, it was pretty profound, I think. Let's see if you agree. He simply prayed, Dear God, your will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Amen. Now, the question I have this morning is, are we, myself included, truly willing to pray that prayer with sincerity? Are we truly willing to surrender completely to God's will for our lives? Are we willing to submit? Because the reality is that word submit carries with it in our culture somewhat of a negative connotation, right? I mean, we hear submit and we think inferior. Uh, We think oppression and all of those things. But the truth is submit, when understood in the biblical sense, is not supposed to be a negative thing. As a matter of fact, it is the key to experiencing God's blessings for my life. It is the key to being able to faithfully live out God's will and God's plan for my life, which goes right along with the theme of our series. For the past several weeks, we've been walking through the book of James together, our series titled Taking It to the Streets. And in this series, we've talked about what it means to live out our faith. James is all about the gospel with shoes on. It is living out our faith. As a matter of fact, we, the basis for our series we have discussed is that faith that is real works practically in a person's life. True faith is faith that works. Works don't save us, but works show that we have been saved. And so we've looked at what that means for us in several different areas, and we're going to zero in this morning on the concept of submission. Now, Summer Hecox is my brave soul this morning. She is going to come and uh, do our memory verse, our memory passage, rather, for the day. There you go. Make sure it's on. I'm not 100% sure. I don't know. There you go. No, you don't have to turn it on. There you go. Okay, Summer's going to quote James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Okay. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy with God. Uh, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but God gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Uh, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. 
Yet let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not... Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother and judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, you are a judge. And there is only one judge, or what? there is only one lawgiver and one judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge a neighbor? Great job, Summer. Well, she rocked that, didn't she? Yeah, good job. So, submission. Submission before God, submission before each other, our fellow man. The opposite, you could say, of submission is pride. And pride opposes submission. And as we see, as we've seen in James, as we see in our passage today, it can result in quarrels, bitterness, jealousy, fighting among God's people. Pride opposes submission. Submission, on the other hand, promotes unity. In order to be united, we first submit to God, and then we submit to each other, putting each other's needs above our own. So this morning, we're going to, care, uh, to compare the characteristics of both pride and submission. Now, let me go ahead and tell you in your notes, there's a typo. I don't want you to be distracted, so let's go ahead and fix the typo, okay? It is precedes, not proceeds. Although there are benefits of submission, that was not the intent, so go ahead and fix that. But we're going to get into comparing the characteristics of pride and submission. First is this, pride brings war, submission precedes peace. Pride is going to result in war, but submission will has to come before we experience peace. You know, I found a, a study, I, I don't know how many years ago now, but it, it intrigued me because it, it was it was a little disturbing. I don't know what that says about me, but it, it was a, a Dutch professor actually took the time to calculate how much it cost to kill an enemy soldier in different wars throughout history. And I thought, what a crazy thing to research. Um, I think with Memorial Day coming up, we should all be reminded of the cost of war and what it cost our country, what it cost the men and women who serve for us to have the freedom to do what we're doing right now. Um, but this, this study found how it changed through the years. He estimated that during the reign of Julius Caesar, to kill an enemy soldier cost less than $1. And this was at the time adjusted for inflation, um, which today would be much different. Um, at the time of Napoleon... It had considerably inflated to more than $2,000 to kill an enemy soldier. At the end of the First World War, it had multiplied several times to reach a figure of $17,000. During the Second World War, it was about $40,000. And in Vietnam, in 1970, to kill an enemy soldier, it cost the United States $200,000. And that's where the study ended. I don't know what the cost is today. I can guarantee you it's a lot more. But just a reminder, a subtle reminder of the cost of war. Literally. Financially. 
But what about emotionally, spiritually? And yes, war that we normally think of between countries, warring countries, but what about war within the church? What about war within myself? What about war with God? The costs are great. And that's why James is addressing what he's addressing today. There are different types of wars that he just mentioned, that I just summarized for you. One is war amongst ourselves. The first part of verse 1, what is the source of wars and fights among you, James asks his readers. We're told in Psalm 133 verse 1 how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. That's his desire. That's what he wants And believers should be able to live together in love, unity, harmony, but many times that's not the case. And there's great cost. There's great sadness when that happens. When you look at the early churches, this was the case. This is certainly the case to the believers that James is writing to, and we see examples of this in the early church. Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, even the church in Philippi, which Paul loved dearly and had a wonderful relationship, a special relationship with. There were evidently two ladies who couldn't get along that were, were, were causing division in the church. There were sides, people taking sides. James mentions a couple of different types of war, couple different types of conflict in his letter. He talks about class wars in chapter 2. If you go back to chapter 2, there's a rivalry between the rich and the poor. The rich man gets attention, the poor man's ignored. We're going to see in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, there's employment wars going on. There are laborers who are either not getting their wages or they're not getting paid a fair wage. And then there's also church fights taking place. Back in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, we looked at. Apparently, the believers that James wrote to were at war with each other over positions in the church. There was envy. There was jealousy. Many of them wanted to be teachers. They wanted to be leaders. And they were envious of those who had those positions. And then there are personal wars, which we see in chapter 4. Believers were speaking evil of each other. They were judging each other. James calls them out on it. The wrong use of the tongue we see again, don't we? We talked about how deadly the tongue can be in chapter 3, and we're reminded yet again how damaging the tongue, the speech, the things that we say to each other about each other are and can be. To speak evil of somebody who's a brother or a sister in Christ or to judge someone, a brother or sister in Christ, based on partiality or partial evidence, not having the full picture, and and probably unkind motives is what's happening here. That is to sin against that person and ultimately against God. All sin is against God. And so we see different conflicts going on in the church that James is writing to. There's war amongst believers, and then there's, there's war within ourselves. That's a possibility too. You know, I can be at war with myself on the inside. Several different things going on. Verse, the second part of verse 1, don't they come from your passions that wage war within you, James says. The reason you're at war with your brother and your sister is because you're at war on the inside. Conflicting desires, passions waging war. 
The war in the heart is helping to cause the war that's going on in the church that James is addressing here. And this brings the light to light the truth that really all the essence of all sin, the, the cause of all sin, when you really just get down to the root of it, is selfishness. It's wanting my way versus God's way, or thinking my way is better, or wanting to be God, or wanting to call the shots in my life. That really just stems from selfishness, right? It's a lack of willingness, a refusal to submit. And that's What's happening? You desire, he says, you, yet you do not have. It's you're desiring and you don't have. And we'll talk about why they're not getting what they desire in just a minute. But James is saying that the struggles that are racking the community of faith here are, are struggles that stem from the war that's going on in their hearts. The battle that's raging in their hearts, that it stems from, from their envious desire to get what they don't have. What do they want? Well, we, we know that, right? They, they want influence. They want the type of wisdom that would allow at least one group within the church wants wisdom that would allow them to be teachers and leaders in the church, which in and of itself is not a horrible goal. It can be a good goal. The problem is they're wanting it for the wrong reasons. Their desire is influence. They think they already have the wisdom they need, but they don't have the proper wisdom. They don't have true wisdom. And so their their motives are wrong. And many times, you know, we try to disguise religious quarrels and spirituality when, when you really get down to it, and we've seen it throughout Scripture. The reality is, is it's the result of selfishness. All we have to do is, again, look at Scripture. Think about Miriam and Aaron in Numbers 12. They complained about Moses' wife, but the reason, the real reason they were doing that is that they were jealous of Moses' authority. We see in James, uh, in Mark chapter 10, James and John, they asked for special thrones in the kingdom. But what were they really wanting? They were wanting recognition. They were wanting power. They were wanting influence, selfishness, the wrong motives. Selfish desires are dangerous things, and they can lead to wrong actions. Verse 2, you murder, you fight, and you wage war. Now, this is where if you're reading through this, you're likely to ask a question because it seems pretty straightforward. Is James really saying they're killing one another? Well, I mean, it could be. I mean, James is writing at a time when the, the Jewish zealot movement was pretty popular, and so you, you could have a, a situation where you had zealots who became followers of Christ who were still pretty zealous, right? Used to physically used to physically taking out their aggression and and you could see a, a situation where a conflict within the church two sides think they're right and and a former zealot just says hey I'm just going to take you out <laughs> that'll solve my problem so that could be and and I guess we truly don't know for sure but what I think is probably more likely the case here is that James is 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 really referring to murderous anger Jesus talked about, you know, and, and, and Scripture teaches us that to be angry at someone, you can commit murder in your heart. But I think it actually goes a little bit st- a step further than that because if left unchecked, murderous anger, what will that eventually lead to? If left unchecked, what could it lead to? It could actually lead to murder. If you don't believe that, just turn on the news, and you'll see examples of that every day, right? 
Someone in a fit of rage does something that maybe they never would have done. Um, murderous anger, if left unchecked, well, at the least result in broken relationships and, and, and emotional harm, physical harm, potentially, at worst, could actually lead to murder. And I, I think what James is saying here is that you've already committed murder in your heart because you have murderous anger in your heart. And if you guys don't get this situated, it will eventually lead to murderous acts because that's where this goes. He's warning them. And, and that just kind of shows us how serious this conflict is becoming within the church that James is writing to. He's saying they need to get it under control. With this in mind, James is telling them, he's warning his, his readers about these envious desires that have, they've allowed to take, take root in their lives and, and what it's already become and what it could become if they don't do something about it right now. And then in verse 3, James, us, James gives us insight into why these believers are behaving the way that they are. Verse 3, you ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. And this is a core truth that I've experienced in my life and I've seen in, in the lives of others in, in churches. And that's this. When our praying is wrong, our whole Christian life is wrong. If we're, if we're not in tune with the Lord, if our relationship with God is not what it should be, if I'm not praying, communicating with him, both me communicating to him and listening to what he has to say to me, if my prayer life is not strong, if it's not healthy, if I'm not growing, then my whole life is out of whack. And that, that's what's happened. They're asking, but they're asking with wrong motives because they're not seeking God's will. They're not listening to the voice of God. They're just listening to those desires that are waging war within them. Selfish living and selfish praying always lead to chaos. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you. But that doesn't mean we have a free ticket to get whatever we want because the type of asking that Jesus is talking about is asking that's in submission to him first and in line with who he is in the name of God the character of God, representative of who he is, in line with who he is, which means it's in line with his will. And the only way I'm going to know his will is if I'm listening to him, if I'm seeking him, if I'm in his word. But then when my heart, my desires become the same as his because I'm in tune to the spirit, I'm in tune to what he's doing in my life and in my world around me, I'm going to ask for the things that God wants. And when I ask for the things that God wants, my desires are the same. He is ready, willing, and, and eager to give those things. What James is saying is that you guys are so off base, you're asking for things in line with your desires, which are in conflict with God's desires, and that's why you're not getting what you ask for. If there's war on the inside, it's going to lead to chaos. If there's war on the inside, there's going to be war on the outside. There's going to be war amongst believers. There's going to be war within myself. And people who are at war with themselves because of selfish desires, I have found, are usually, if not always, unhappy people. They never enjoy life. And ultimately, they will be, because of this, at war with God, which is another type of conflict that we see in verses 4 and 5. 
Starting with verse 4, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever, whoever wants to be a friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Adulterous people, he says. They are committing spiritual adultery. They have cozied up with the world. They're snuggling up with the world. And as a result, they've become enemies of God. And so their hearts should be devoted a single-minded devotion to God alone, but because they are also these selfish desires that they are feeding, that they are attempting to satisfy, they are cozying up to the world, and in so doing, they are becoming enemies of God. And we become enemies of God when when we become friends of the enemies of God. All right, I'll say that again. We become enemies of God when we become friends with the enemies of God. So what are the enemies of God? Well, we know that the world, which is human society apart from God, okay? God's creation is good, although it is certainly affected by sin. We live in a fallen creation. What God created, though, was good. When I'm talking about the world, I'm talking about human society apart from God, separated from God, lost in sin. Satan himself rules this world, and that's what that's talking about. And so when I become friends with the world, what it stands for, which is opposed to Scripture, opposed to God, then I'm becoming friends with an enemy of God. The flesh, our old nature. We know that as believers, when we are saved, we receive a new nature. You saw that illustrated through baptism, right? The old life of sin is now gone. I'm no longer bound by sin. I have a new life. I've become a new creation in Christ. So I have a new nature, but I still battle the old nature. I still live in a sinful world. I, I, I'm, I'm set apart. I'm justified, Right, But I'm, I'm entering, when I get saved, the process of sanctification, which is a lifelong process. I still have weaknesses. I still make mistakes. We all still fall short. We sin. It's covered in, in the blood of Jesus, the grace of God. But there's still that old nature that we wage war with. And Galatians 5.17 speaks to this. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit. And the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. There's that constant struggle. By the power of God, we overcome sin, and we can overcome sin, but there's still that struggle that goes on. So the flesh, so whenever I succumb to the flesh as a believer, I'm cozying up with the world, I'm, I'm, I'm meeting these fleshly desires in ways that God doesn't intend, then I become friends with the flesh. As a result, I'm friends with an enemy of God, and I myself am an enemy of God. But then there's the devil, probably what we immediately think of, the devil, when we think of enemies of God, he is certainly the enemy of God. The world is in conflict with the Father. The flesh fights against the Holy Spirit. Even as believers, we have that struggle, and then the devil opposes the Son of God. And so if I am friends with the world, friends with the flesh, I may not come out and admit it, but I'm, I'm friends with the devil in those ways as well. And, and as a result, I'm at war with God. And yes, it is possible. You can't lose your salvation, but it is possible through disobedience to be at odds with the Lord as a believer. It is possible to work against God's plan. There will be God will punish you because you are his, and, and, and he, will, he will discipline us when we do that, but it's still possible. 
And, and that's, that's what's happening, part of what's happening here in James. And we just need to, to, to come to an understanding where comparing pride and submission, really war springs from pride when we're talking about this war, these different conflicts that James is addressing. Verse 6 says, though, he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So what's the antidote to pride? It's submission, humility, the grace of God that is, is received through humbling myself, submitting myself first to God. God's grace demands a response of humility. God wants us to be humble. Satan wants us to be prideful. God's grace is enjoyed by those who are humble. Those who are proud will experience God's resistance, on the other hand. Pride brings war, but submission brings peace. Also, pride brings weakness, and submission precedes power. You know, pride will eventually, you know, pride goeth before the fall, eventually result in weakness because I'm depending on my own strength. But if I want to experience God's power in my life, the first step to doing that is on my knees. The first step to doing that is submission, submitting to the Lord. Submit to God, verse 7 says, and this is a military term. It means to get in your proper rank under authority, to line up under. Um, We're to place ourselves under the authority, under the lordship of Christ. When I say he's lord of my life, it means he's the ruler. He calls the shots. He controls my life. He, I, he directs my life, and I follow. I mean, he, I'm placing myself within my proper rank under the authority of Jesus Christ. I'm submitting to his authority in all areas of my life. And when it comes to living for Christ on a daily basis... Unconditional surrender is the only way to complete victory. If I'm going to to experience victory over death and sin, to receive salvation, I have to submit. I have to surrender my life completely to God and, and accept salvation through Christ alone. But I'm giving up my life. He bought it with his life, so I'm giving up my life. And my my desire and my uh, my, my want to do whatever I want, all right? But then from day to day, as I battle the flesh, as I battle the world, if I'm going to have victory from day to day, I have to submit each and every day to the Lordship of Christ. I have to commit and follow through on that commitment to live the life he has for me. Submission and total surrender give us a few things that are vitally important to victory in life. And that's the ability to resist Satan. Verse 7, resist the devil, he will flee from you. So when we submit to God, he gives us the power to resist Satan. And, And the reason we can't do that on our own, the reason submission does that is because we're, we're allowing him to take control, right? We're giving him free reign in our lives. And in doing that, he, we are depending completely on his power and strength. So where we fall short in our ability, or inability rather, God more than makes up for. 
He is strong where we are weak. And so we have the ability to resist Satan because he's giving us the ability. It's his power, his strength. Whatever power Satan has, we've been given the ability to overcome that power through submission. We also are given the privilege of drawing close to God. Draw close to God and he will draw close to you, James says in verse 8. James is, what he's saying here, and you, you gotta, we got to look at the structure, the order, right? Submit to God, which involves a recognition of sin, right? I have to recognize that I have sinned, and this, from the point we receive salvation, but then whenever we're convicted of sin in our lives, and, and where James readers are, they need to be repenting of sin, which we'll get to in a moment, but th- this is, you know, James, this is understood here. When, when James is saying, if you'll draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Well, what's necessary in order for me to draw near to God? Well, I've got to deal with sin in my life if there is unconfessed sin. Because if, if I've, even as a believer, if there's unconfessed sin, my relationship with God is going to be broken. It's going to be severed. Not in the sense that I've lost salvation, but in the sense that my fellowship with God is severed. It's, it's affected. It's broken. And so if I'm going to draw near to God, I've got to submit. And in submitting, I'm confessing sin. The Holy Spirit convicts me of sin. I confess that sin. And so once I do that, once that sin is dealt with, once repentance has taken place, there's the freedom to draw close to God. And yes, that's true in salvation. If I want to get close to God, I've got to, I've got to confess sin. I've got to, to, to recognize my need for forgiveness and realize that Jesus paid the price so that I can have that forgiveness. But once I have it, I can draw close to God and I can experience fellowship with God. What a privilege submission brings, closeness fellowship with God, if we're going to draw near to God, if we're going to be reconciled to God and we are guilty of being friends with the world, the enemies of God, as James readers were, then we have to repent. We have to turn from that sin and turn back to God. He says, cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This repentance he's talking about is both an external and an internal repentance. Cleanse your hands. That's external. Internal, purify your hearts. So there's actions that need to be repented from. And James has covered those pretty thoroughly. But then there's the internal. The heart condition is wrong. And there needs to be internal purification Why grieving and mourning? Well, grieving and mourning show that we are taking our sin seriously. Seeing sin for what it really is and seeing how it affects my my life, my relationship to God, and how it affects other people. Grieving and mourning over the effect of sin. And if we're willing to do this, we'll get to experience an exaltation that comes from God. Verse 10 The NASB translates this verse a little different. It says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. All that that natural pattern that we just discussed, submission, confession, repentance. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord because when you do that, he will exalt you. Now think about what it is that James readers were wanting here. They're wanting exaltation, right? They're wanting positions of authority. They're wanting recognition. They're wanting influence, leadership within the church, but their motives are wrong. They're wanting human recognition. 
So essentially what James is saying here is you think you know what you want. You think that exaltation, that recognition will bring you joy, will give you what your heart desires, but only God can truly do that. And if you are willing to humble yourself, if, if I'm willing, if we are willing to humble ourselves before God through repentance and, and confession of sin, there will be an exalting that takes place that no human being can give you. And, and it's not about recognizing who I am. It's not about glory for myself. There's joy and satisfaction that comes in a life lived to glorify God that, that can't be achieved through any other means aside from first submitting before the Lord. In the presence of God, James says, the result is he will exalt you. And it reminds us that we gain spiritual vitality and spiritual victory both in life and in death. And the only way that's possible is by the power and strength of God. And what appropriates that power is submission. It is through submission, through surrender, that I come to depend on God completely, which unleashes his power in my life. And that results in victory in life. And certainly victory in death. But if I resist... When we try to exalt ourselves by relying on our own abilities, our own status, wealth, we're going to fail. And ultimately, God will humble us. But if we submit to God, he will exalt us by his power and strength. And another wonderful benefit of this type of submission is that we experience peace with our fellow man, which is exactly what the readers, what James's readers needed. Verse 11, don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. The law is summed up by what? How did Jesus sum up the law? First, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Everything you are, everything that you have. What's the second greatest commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. This is what James is referring to. First, I love God. I've submitted to God. I'm sold out to him. I'm passionately in love with God, serving him faithfully. I want his will to please him. And because of that, I love what God loves. And so I love others. I love all people. I especially love his bride. I love the church. So the law is summed up. Now, if we are to obey the law, we have to obey both of those commands, right? And all the law deals with either my relationship with God or my relationship with others. So if I'm going to obey the law, I have to love God and love others. James' readers were failing in both of these areas. If they submit to God, if they reconcile to God, the natural response would be reconciliation with each other. But there's war raging within themselves with each other. And as a result, they're at war with God. I have to love what God loves. James has already addressed all the hateful speech, the slander, the jealousy, the envy. But if they were really in love with God, if they were really submitted to God, all of that would stop. All of that would cease. They would then be at peace with God and be at peace with each other. The key to peace with others is peace with God that comes as a result of repentance and submission. We need to recognize also the authority of God. We need to recognize the authority of God. 
It's really kind of what sums all this up, what kind of wraps it up. Because if God is truly an authority, then his way is right. If God is an authority, his law is perfect. And while we are under the new covenant, it doesn't abolish the law. That's why Jesus summed up the law for us. Love God, love your neighbor. And so if I don't recognize God's supreme authority, then what motivation do I have for submitting to him and obeying his law? Verse 12, there is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, this isn't saying by any means that we shouldn't hold one another accountable. That's one of our jobs as believer to sharpen, believers to sharpen each other, to hold each other accountable for sin. But, but it's, it's all about your motivation for doing so. Is, it, is your desire, is my desire to hold you accountable, is it motivated by love, truly? Or is it, in the case of those James is writing to, out of jealousy and envy? Uh, it's, accountability is, is absolutely necessary within the church. But jealousy and envy, which again is happening in this church, are wrong motives for doing that. And that's what James is talking about. He's talking about judgment and condemnation that's fueled by those things, jealousy and envy. And, and God is the only lawgiver. I mean, he is the only one who has the right to judge in that way. We're not talking about calling sin what it is and being honest about sin. It's, it's judgment fueled by the wrong motives. But if we submit to him, if we love him, if we love God, if we love others, even accountability, even those difficult confrontations will be done in love and submission. Submission is the key. But the result is something more beautiful and something more enjoyable than any of us could ever imagine. Now, you're probably wondering why I have this filthy box up here, right? Let's, let's imagine for a moment that this arrived on your front porch. You're expecting a package. This is not an advertisement for Keurig, but that's what was originally in here. So, but, but it could be anything, right? This was just the box I had in my garage, all right? It could be anything. But imagine you're waiting for this package and it arrives on your front door. How many of you would want, based on how it appears, would want what's in this box? You'd be looking for the address and the contact information to get the return repaired or prepared, right? Okay, let's say that you know what's in this box and it's food that you've been waiting for. It's something that you enjoy, and you're, you've been waiting, and it arrives like this. How many of you would be willing to eat what's in this box based on how it looks? Okay. Some of you. Okay. A little suspect, but okay. How, would you believe me if I told you that without a doubt you could eat what's in this box and I am confident that what's in here would not harm you, even though the box looks this way. And yes, this is motor oil on here. I just doctored it up to look nasty. So based on that, would you believe me? Some of you are saying, I hope so. You're the preacher. I hope you won't lie to us. <laughs> Some of you already said, I'll eat it. I don't care. I'm hungry. I'm ready for lunch. All right. Well, I can assure you that you can eat what's in this box. How do I know that? Well, I packed it. 
But the reason is because no matter how bad, and the box is nasty, what's in here is protected. Huh? Okay. I wasn't going to eat in front of y'all, but Ketchel said I could, so here we go. I've got a whole Tupperware bin full of candy here, and I will absolutely... Should I give it to one of my kids first? <laughs> Come here, Annie. You can share. Come here. There you go. I'll take half. You take half. Kit Kat. This isn't an advertisement for Kit Kat either, but why do I know it's safe? Well, it's in the Tupperware. It's sealed. It's protected, right? Now i got to swallow it. Thanks, Ketchel. <laughs> so the box has been through the ringer. It's ugly. It's filthy. And if this box were a person, it would say that it experienced some pain because I stomped on it in my yard. And you can see that, right? It's crushed. Submission has a negative connotation. And listen, submission can be painful. It can be hard. It can get ugly because I got to deal with all that sin. I got to be honest about who I am. I got to be willing to go through the process of putting my will aside and accepting whatever God's will is for me, which, by the way, just because it's the best thing, and it is, doesn't mean it's the easy thing. It's difficult. But what we experience is that just because it appears hard, just because it looks ugly to the world, just because it has a negative connotation, or because it may actually be unpleasant at times and painful, what we see is that submission puts us in a position to experience something that's pretty sweet. Annie can attest, it's pretty sweet, right? A life lived for the glory of God. And the reason that's possible is because when we submit ourselves before the Lord, we enter his protection. No matter what life brings, we can have victory because we are under his protection. No matter what's on the outside of this box, the candy's protected. Airtight seal. And if we are in submission, if we are following the Lord Jesus Christ, if we are willing to live life on his terms, accept his will, it won't always be easy, but we will do so under his protection and by his power and his strength. This candy, is its safety, its freshness, I guess, its ability to stay clean is dependent upon the strength of this Tupperware. And, and I could break this Tupperware if I wanted to. Our safety, our joy, our ability to, to have victory in life over sin from day to day is only dependent upon the strength of God, which no one can break and no one can overcome. Submission brings victory, and that is why it's worth it. It may not be easy, but what God calls you to, he will equip you to. And I'll end with this quote. The will of God will never take you where the grace of God will not protect you. God's protection. If you want victory, if you want peace with God, peace with your fellow man, submit to God. And he will exalt you and give you the desires of your heart because they'll be his desires. Joy, meaning, and purpose. But it begins with submission. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the joy that we experience in a relationship with you. Thank you for giving us 
the strength from day to day that we need to have victory in life. And that's only possible because of the salvation that you have provided. And, and Lord, to experience that, we have to submit. We have to recognize our need for forgiveness, the sin that exists in our lives, and that, that, that only you can provide that forgiveness, that Jesus, you paid the price on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And so, Father, I pray that if there's somebody in this room or somebody watching online that that you're bringing under conviction right now, that they would just confess their sin to you, that they would cry out to you, believing that you died for them and that you were raised from the dead, that they would invite you into their lives and experience the gift of salvation that only you can provide. For those who may be struggling with the flesh or struggling with some other war on the inside, on the outside, Lord, I pray that submission would take place, that we would be willing to submit to you, submit to each other, deal with any unconfessed sin that exists in our lives, and, Lord, seek reconciliation, seek um, peace with you that results in peace with others, that we would love each other just as you have loved us. Lord, we thank you for that love. Lord, just speak to us in our hearts. Help us to respond in a way that pleases you. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand for our time of commitment?